verse 1, and it seemed pretty straightforward. After all, most of the words are kind of the same as in English, just with an ah or an uh at the end, right? No problem. Uh, but there was a problem, because French 1 was a whole lot easier than French 2 or French 3. Uh, go figure, right? But I started to feel okay with my grasp of the French language, and then I graduated and went to college where I had to take foreign language classes again. And in college French, we were required to speak only French. All the instruction was completely in French. I dreaded that class. I couldn't even read the syllabus. It's that I'm really trying to understand what's going on in this class, but I just am not getting it kind of a feeling. Maybe you know the feeling I'm talking about. Maybe you can recall your own days in high school or college feeling the same kind of way in a classroom. Maybe you've wrestled with those feelings of anxiety and stress, just not being able to understand what you're so desperately trying to understand. And maybe you don't even have to go all the way back to school to think about that. Maybe you felt that way with God. Maybe you've been desperately trying to understand his will for your life, and you feel like uh, you're back in French class and God's speaking a foreign language. Well, if you've ever felt that way, I'm really glad you're here because that's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. And I'm sure you know, but election day is just a couple of days away. If you haven't already sent in your ballot, I'd encourage you to do that, to vote. It's just, it's not only a great privilege, but it's a civic duty. It's a great, important way for us to reflect God's values in our nation. And uh, every time I think about elections, I think about the, uh, the moment that both revealed and solidified Ronald Reagan's persona as the great communicator, um, Maybe you remember it as well. It was a nationally broadcast debate between Reagan and Jimmy Carter. It came at the end of a fierce contest. And for Carter, the situation was pretty dire. Iranian uh, radicals had held 52 Americans hostage for over a year, almost a year, I should say. Uh, The economy had nosedived. Inflation had skyrocketed. And so by the time of the debate, most polls showed either a tie or a slight edge for Reagan. And coming just a week before the election, there wasn't any time for Carter to recover from a stumble. And that night, Carter, to his credit, displayed a mastery of detail. And Ronald Reagan displayed a mastery of stagecraft. In his final statement, Reagan delivered the knockout punch. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? Is there more or less unemployment than there was four years ago? Reagan's series of rhetorical questions, carefully rehearsed and delivered with his characteristic charm, uh, pierced Carter's presidency and helped cement Reagan's legacy as the great communicator. So at the end of the night, it was Reagan's debate, and one week later, it was Reagan's election, right? And yet far from being just a potent political question... Reagan's piercing question, are you better off now than you were four years ago, is worth discussing for our spiritual lives as well. One of the truths our student ministry says all the time is that everybody wants to be a better parent, right? That's true. Everybody who's a parent wants to be better at it. We all want to be able to say that we're better off now than we were four years ago, so to speak, that we're better parents, we're better people, And yet there's a a corollary truth to that from our student ministry. Every parent wants to be a better parent, but every parent needs help from outside themselves. The same is true for for each of us, not only in parenting, but in our spiritual lives. We all want to be better, closer to God, more mature, 
but we all need help outside ourselves. So we can ask ourselves this perfect election week question. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? And thinking about that question, not just in terms of the economy or political issues, but in terms of our spiritual lives. Are we living out the life that God has called us to? Are we growing in our ability to reflect Christ in the world? Are we really embracing the calling that God has for us? Are we better off? Or are we just one more person who wishes they were better and they're not? This morning, we're going to continue our series, The Call, and already in the series, we've learned some valuable things. We've learned that each of us has, in fact, two callings, a a general calling to to be a disciple, to make disciples of Jesus, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We're all called to connect to Christ, to pursue life with Him, a life of obedience over outcome, trusting Him with the results, and so we all have that general calling, but we also all have a specific calling. Each and every one of us has specific things God has given us to do, and last week, we started to drill down On that specific calling, we're going to continue that this week. If you were here last week, you know, we learned about ourselves. We learned about all the the characteristics, all the events in our life, and, and how to detective those things out. We all have gifts. We all have things that God has prepared us for. We all have a, a goal to strive towards, and our job is to determine that goal and live it out. In your resource guide last week, I gave you a lot of tools you can use to begin to do the hard work of learning about your specific calling. And this week, uh, we're going to learn about our purpose and our design, just one more way we can really connect ourselves to our specific calling. And hopefully I don't have to work too hard to convince you that that God has a purpose for you, that uh, God has a calling for you, something specific for you to do and to be. And and this calling from God, it's an act of love. Uh, The book of Ephesians tells us that because of his great love for us, God gave us a new life in Christ. And that new life comes with a purpose, with a calling, something specific for each of us. So look with me, if you will, at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You'll see it on the screens. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is a familiar verse to many of us, and and often with familiar verses, there's a temptation to to speed over it or to gloss over it, or there's a temptation to to just look at it apart from its context. But it's worth our time this morning to, to pause for a moment to think carefully about this verse. Let me share a couple of observations. First of all, the verse starts with a word that tells us something. It starts with the word for. That's a conjunction. That means it's, it's connected to what comes before, the verses that comes before. So we should take a moment to notice what comes before. Right before this, Paul, the author of Ephesians, tells us that our salvation, our new life in Christ, is a gift. It's a gift from God, and the passage tells us that because of that, we shouldn't boast. We shouldn't boast because we didn't earn this love from God. We didn't do anything to merit this love from God. It's a gift, plain and simple, an act of grace on God's part. And what that tells us is that there's a reason we shouldn't boast. So this this four that starts this verse, verse 10, it tells us why we shouldn't boast, why our salvation is a gift. It's because we are God's. We're his. He created us. We belong to him. And, And more than that, we're his Workmanship. This word that's translated workmanship is a really interesting word. It's, it's used to describe something that's, that's made by a craftsman. 
Uh, it refers to a work of art. So not just the making of some simple thing or not even the making of a, a tool, something useful, but to the making of something very special. In Greek, the word is poema. It might be where I, we get our English word poem from. A poem, it, it's a work of art created by a poet, a, a master of his or her craft. And this word, it only occurs two times in the Bible, here in Ephesians and then in Romans 1 verse 20. In that verse, it refers to God's creation. In this verse, here in Ephesians, it refers to God's new creation, the work that God has done in you and me, making us new through Christ. And so, so right from the beginning of this verse, we can learn some wonderful things about God and about ourselves. He's made us, he's made us unique, like, like one-of-a-kind artwork. But the verse still has more to say. It goes on to tell us both, both the how he created us and why he created us. So the how comes in the next few words. He created us in Christ Jesus. I told you this word, poema, is used only two verses here in Romans 1. And in that verse in Romans, it refers to God's creation, as we said, that the, the world he created. Here in Ephesians, it refers to you and me. This, the pinnacle of God's creation, if you will. And the verse goes on to tell us that we were created in Christ Jesus. So really what it's talking about here is not just the fact that we exist, that we were born, but it's talking about the, our recreation, the, the, the fact that you and I are made new in Christ. That new birth marks a new life for us. And it's in that creation, that act of craftsmanship, that we have been created, recreated by God through Jesus. So that's the how. The rest of the verse tells us the why. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So created for a very specific purpose, to do good works. So each of us has a purpose, a calling on our lives. We've been created by God and recreated by Christ for a purpose, to do something. And God desires us to live into the fullness of that. So taking a moment just to pause and ponder this well-known verse is worthwhile because it teaches us so many things. First, it tells us that we belong to God. We're his. It tells us we're his workmanship, his, his craft, his work of art. He's created us, he's given us new life, and he's given us a purpose, something to do. And understanding that truth makes us poised to be able to ask the question, what should I do? Or what are the good works that God has crafted me to do? That's the right question to ask. In fact, that's one of the right questions to ask. In our time this morning, I want us to ask and answer three questions that will help us get to the heart of our calling, what God has called us to do. And the first question comes right out of our understanding of this verse, Ephesians 2.10, is what we've already said. What should I do? You can see that in your sermon notes. What should I do? That's the first question. And I'd love to be able to stand here and tell you, man, I heard from God this week and he told me exactly what you should do, grab a pen and write this down. But I can't do that. You've got to do some hard work in there. But hopefully some of these resources, some of the questions from last week are helpful because God's not going to ask you to do something that comes out of the blue. He's not going to ask you to do something that he doesn't equip you for. Your specific calling is not going to be something that has no connection to your life. So learning about yourself, that's a necessary step in discerning God's specific calling for your life. God created you, and when he recreated you in Christ Jesus, he didn't radically unmake all the parts of your personality. He still has the same raw materials in your life. Uh, I've always had a sense of humor, 
so I'm told. I've always been able to make people laugh, and I used to use my sense of humor to tear people down, to tear things down, but being a Jesus follower, I'm recreated, hopefully using my sense of humor to build things up. You know, I'm still the same fundamental person, just refined by the Holy Spirit. So let me just encourage you, as you're trying to answer this question, what should I do? Then you need to understand yourself first. That's going to greatly help in the process. In fact, uh, theologian and author Jen Wilkin talks about this very idea in her book, In His Image. This is what she says. She says, perhaps you've tried to use the Bible to answer the question, what should I do? Facing a difficult decision, perhaps you've meditated for hours on a psalm or a story in the Gospels, asking God to show you how it speaks to your current dilemma. And perhaps you've known the frustration of hearing silence, or worse, acting on a hunch or or a leading, only to find out later, apparently, you had not heard the Lord's will. I know that process better than I'd like to admit, she says. And I also know the shame that accompanies it, the sense that I'm tone deaf to the Holy Spirit, that I'm terrible at discovering God's will. But God does not hide his will from his children. As an earthly parent, I don't tell my kids, there's a way to please me. Let's see if you can figure it out. If I don't conceal my will from my earthly children, how much more our Heavenly Father? His will doesn't need discovering. It's in plain sight to see it We need to start asking the question that deals with his primary concern. We need to ask, who should I be? Who should I be? That's the second question we need to ask. The second question there in your sermon notes. And uh, I can relate to what she says. I mentioned at the beginning of this series that at one point in my life, I felt called to be a college professor. Many years ago, I had finished up a graduate degree. I was applying for some teaching positions. And I wasn't super clear about where God might send me or what my next step might be. I had a, a general sense combined with my own desire. I knew what I wanted to do, and I felt like it's what God wanted me to do. But I wanted something more than just a feeling. I wanted some real reassurance. And so I did just what Jen Wilkin describes. I searched the Bible. At the time, I was reading through the Psalms. And uh, so each day I would read the Psalms, not so much to hear what God might say to me, as I should have been doing, but I was reading the Psalms, just mining them for clues about uh, what my future might be. I wanted to know what I should do, and I thought the Bible held the key. I just had to dig for it, right? Well, I was increasingly disappointed as each new day and each new psalm didn't bring a clear answer. It was only later, when I didn't get the college teaching positions that I applied for, that I began to reflect on the situation, and I began to see my own attitude in it. And I began to learn just what Jen Wilkins says. She goes on to clarify about the second question, who should I be? She says, of course the questions, what should I do and who should I be, are not unrelated. But the order in which we ask them matters. If we focus on our actions, the doing, without addressing our hearts, being, we may end up as merely better behaved lovers of self. Think about it. What good is it for me to choose the right job if I'm still consumed with selfishness? What good is it for me to choose the right home or spouse if I'm still eaten up with covetousness? What does it profit me to make the right choice if I'm still the wrong person? A lost person can make good choices, but only a person indwelt by the Holy Spirit can make a good choice for the purpose of glorifying God. 
The hope of the gospel in our sanctification is not simply that we would make better choices, but that we would become better people, she says. That's the hope that caused John Newton to pen, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's what inspires the Apostle Paul to speak of believers being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The gospel teaches us that the grace that is ours through Christ is by the work of the Spirit transforming us increasingly into someone better. But not just anyone better, the gospel transforms us into who we should have been. It re-images us. This period in, in my own life, this time of not getting the job that I thought God had called me to, turned out to be one of the best growth experiences in my life. I was forced to reflect on myself. I was forced to take a hard look at the second but most important question, who should I be? Apart from the doing that I thought I wanted and that I thought God wanted, I had to wrestle with what God had done and who I was and who I should be. So the order of these questions really matters. Who should I be has to come first. That's the question that gets to the heart of our design, the how of our creation. We were created, newly created in Christ Jesus. And it's only when we let that happen in all of its fullness in our lives that we can move to the next part, our purpose, the why of our creation. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's where the doing comes in. And if we can get the order of these questions right, then we begin to see real growth in our lives and we begin to see real purpose and we begin to live out our calling. All that leads to the third question we need to ask and that question is simply this. Where should I go? And notice I didn't ask the question, where am I willing to go or even how can I serve God right where I am? But simply this question, where should I go? I think asking the question in this way communicates to God a certain willingness. And willingness is the key. We've already sung this morning about, uh, uh, I will go where you will lead me, Lord, right? Willingness is key. And it's clear that God doesn't ask all of us to pick up and move to faraway places, but he does for some people. I will go out on a limb and I'll say, if you're like the kind of person who has like a sixth generation family farm here in the valley and you're working that land, God's probably not going to call you away from that and send you somewhere else. Or if you're the kind of person who's raised your kids here and they're all here and your grandkids are all here, God's probably not going to send you to new country to start all over again. Now he might, but he might just call you to some short-term excursions or he might call you to go into a set of different relationships, going in that kind of a way. But in any case, you've got to ask yourself if you're willing. Willingness is the key. And, and remember, obedience over outcome, that's the goal. Trusting God and trusting him with the results, I think it would be good and healthy for all of us to prayerfully ask this question, where should I go? And in order to establish our own willingness to go where God leads, think honestly about these related questions. Am I willing to move and go wherever God wants me to go? Am I willing to work with whomever God wants me to work? Am I willing to do whatever God asks me to do regardless of the consequences? Those are hard questions. Even the most committed of us are going to hesitate on one or all of them 
if we're honest. Our tendency is to start asking questions of our own. I mean, could I wait a year to get ready? Or are there vacation days over there? Is there good housing? How are the schools? What's the retirement plan like? If I go, I'm going to have friends, right? Or if I pay this price, I'll see amazing things happen right away, right? Maybe the even harder question is this. How can I expect God to send me if I'm not really willing to go? Do we really believe he can take care of us? Do we really believe if we sacrifice things for him, it'll be worth it? Do we trust that God knows what he's doing? Are we willing to surrender control when it comes to the path of our life? If we can't say yes in those ways, then how can we expect our story to be anything other than a story that never really gets told? So asking and answering the question, where should I go, is a critical step. It's a little bit scary. But all three of these questions, who should I be, what should I do, where should I go, they all combine to give us a sense of our specific calling. They all bring clarity to the good works God has prepared for us. And I want to share with you a very practical thing you can do as you ask these questions of yourself and as you answer them. You'll see this in your resource guide. It's an activity known simply as the eight-word mission statement. And the goal of this activity is to really codify, really lock down the answer to these big three questions. It's not an easy activity. It's going to take you some time, some hard thinking, but it's so helpful in really bringing clarity and focus to what God's calling you to do. So let me explain how it works. Um, You know every business, every nonprofit has a mission statement, right? They're important to help a company stay focused on uh, what they're supposed to be doing. For example, this is the mission statement of Google. Google's mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. So everything they do, at least hypothetically, is centered around that mission. Here's another example. Facebook's mission is to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. All right, that's a little bit inspiring. Makes it sound more fun than just looking at cat videos, right? But even a nonprofit organization has a mission statement. For example, here's one from a a place called Show Hope Helps Families with Adoption. They say, Show Hope is a movement to care for orphans. We work to restore hope by breaking down barriers that exist between waiting children and loving families. So you get the idea. This activity that's in your resource guide is a way for you to craft your own personal mission statement. What is God really calling you to do and to be and to go? And we call it the eight-word mission statement because you want to try to limit it to eight words. Keep it nice and tightly focused. There's nothing magical about eight words. It's just, a, uh, just limiting enough to make you think really hard, which is the, pr- the purpose of the whole thing ultimately. And so, so as you embark on this activity, you take all the things you've learned about yourself and your calling thus far. If you've done any of the assessments we talked about last week, you bring those results in. You think about the turning points in your life, all the clues that God has already given you. What are your unique gifts and your abilities? And think hard about the questions that we asked this morning. Who should I be? Where should I go? What should I do? When you have all that information gathered, then what do you do with it? You condense it into this eight-word mission statement. And your statement should have a verb of some kind, some action. 
and it should have an object. Or maybe another way to think about it is that your, your, your mission statement should have a verb, a target, and an outcome. Here's an example. Improve African children's health. Okay? Well, that's a mission statement that has a verb, improve, has a target, the children of Africa, and an outcome, improved health. So this person can know exactly if what they're doing is effective or what they're, you know, are African children getting healthier? The, the results are right there, easy to measure. So you get the idea, hopefully. It's, and your first draft's going to be a little rough. That's okay. It's not so much the outcome you're after as it is the process, just to, to help bring the idea down a little bit. You know, you may not be called to go and save all the orphans in the world. Your main mission might be right in your family. But whether it's here or there, near or far, big or small, God is calling you to good works. He created you and recreated you in Christ so you could do his work, his calling. And taking the time and the energy to bring this kind of clarity to it is an act of obedience. I came across a church that did a variation of this eight-word mission statement. In this case, they were able to narrow down their calling to just two words each. Each person has two words. Just a, a simple way to describe the one thing that they're both passionate about and equipped by God to do. And it's a little bit hard to see the, what they say in the slide, but there's some exciting things here. One of the people says that their one singular focus is validating worth in other people. Another one says eliminating barriers. One person describes themselves as a caring truth teller. They kind of fudged on the two-word thing a little bit there. So, you know, as you interact with others, you'll hopefully end up with a similar kind of description of yourself and what God has called you to do. In your resource guide also, you'll see another activity that's similar, the values cards. All the instructions are there. I'm not going to explain it to you right now. But if you read that and you still have questions, I'm happy to help you think about that. Think about your own unique values that drive your being and your doing and your going. So I want you to get excited about the results that you might have. Get excited about what God might reveal to you as you really take the time and energy to dive into these things, learning about yourself and prayerfully answering these questions, solidifying the answers in your own personal mission statement that will reveal your calling. One more thing to consider. How does the role and the presence of the Holy Spirit relate to personal calling? We receive clarity on our own unique calling through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Assessments and, and uh, experiential exercises, learning, it's all helpful. But the role of the Holy Spirit trumps everything else. Our personal calling is a gift, a sacred gift from God, not earned by anything we've done, but crafted, created by the hand of God and given to us. The, the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit is the one that delivers and distributes our individual gifts. And he distributes them as, as he uh, determines according to his will. So if you could just pick one action to, to, to help you discover your personal calling, choose this. Listen to and learn from the Holy Spirit. That trumps everything else. We started this morning thinking about Ronald Reagan's famous election question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And when we think about that question in reference to our spiritual lives, the idea of being better off means we're more in line with the person that God wants us to be. We're identifying and living out the calling that God has for us at whatever stage of life we find ourselves. Because God is at work telling a story of restoration and redemption and recreation 
through you. You are his, his masterpiece, his craftsmanship created by him and recreated in Christ and created for a purpose, to do good works. So you don't have to flounder about feeling like God is speaking to you in a foreign language. You don't have to buy into some myth that you've got to be the right kind of person for God to really use you. You could be who God made you to be and you can do the things that God made you to do and you could go to the places that God intends you to go. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the gift of salvation. The gift not only that uh, pays the punishment of our sins, that's only the first part, but the gift that gives us new life, just like we sang about. You raised us from the dead. You've given us new life. And my prayer this morning is that we would use that new life to do the things that you want us to do, to be the kind of people that you want us to be, Lord. And it's different for each and every one of us, and I pray that you would give us clarity about what it is that you have for us. I think about uh, how amazing it would be if every single one of us was living with purpose in this valley for you, God. What, what kind of impact this faith family might have if we embrace the truth that, that we're made by you, made in your image, and made to do your good works. What an incredible impact we could have, God. And that's what we want to see. That's our heart's cry, that we would be people who follow you passionately, who are obedient to you, and trust you with all the pieces of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your spirit. Amen.